I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We really hope that this madness would stop soon and we all will be living in peace again. If it happened in Ukraine, you never know what can happen in your countries. Nothing is certain in this world. Last March, as Ukraine reeled in the first few weeks of the Russian invasion and airstrikes pounded cities across the country, we spoke to two Ukrainian journalists you will see that I'm sitting in um, in a bathroom, in, in a shower room, right? Huddled in her apartment in Kyiv was Natalia Grivniak. Because uh, it has quite thick walls and it's far away from the windows. We've been sitting here for a couple of hours uh, since uh, five, uh, 5 in the morning. There were explosions all over the, all over the city. Natalia needed to join the exodus of Ukrainians leaving the country for her health. But she was torn. My mom wants to stay because she does, we have a dog and she doesn't really want to travel anywhere. Plus, it's her house and it's her home. And my father is buried, you know, in Kiev. So she doesn't want to leave him, even, even though he's dead. But she doesn't want yeah. to leave. And I'm torn. I'm torn inside, for real. You cannot even imagine. <laughs> you cannot even imagine. I don't want to leave them. So I just don't want to leave them. Meanwhile, 800 kilometers away, near the southeast coast of the country, Katerina Malafoyeva, who'd already had to flee her home in Donetsk after the war broke out in 2014, now found the Russian invasion was on her doorstep again in Mariupol. The situation that is happening now is very worrying for me because it means that for the second time I already experienced the war in my lifetime. I feel like a double trauma. I, I feel that the things are happening over and over again. As a devastating year in their country draws to a close, what's happened to Katerina and Natalia since we last spoke? Today, on Stories of Our Times, we catch up with them after nearly 10 months of war.
Katerina, how are you? We haven't been able to speak for months now, and I know a lot has changed. Um, how are you? Well, I'm safe and sound. This is the most important. Um, I'm relatively okay, trying to look after my mental health and also about uh, after my physical health too. Uh, not always possible. Well, yeah, I'm coping. And where are you right now? I know it's been quite hard to, to get through to you. Um, where exactly are you? I'm in Kiev, uh, in my rented apartment. And it's quite hard to speak at certain times of the day at the moment. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, so basically, after a number of uh, Russian attacks on the civilian and power infrastructure across Ukraine, we started experiencing problems with the connection, with power. So we have these uh, power cuts. And uh, despite the schedule that is written on the website, you, you can't really predict when you will have connection and, and electricity. Uh, like today, in, instead of basically power cut at midday, uh, they cut it at 9.30 a.m. and returned around 4 p.m. So it's hard to work for many people. And um, when the electricity is back, you need to do everything very quickly, relying on this uh, short period of time. That must be incredibly hard. Even in, even in the capital, even in Kiev, life must be very disrupted. I would actually say that it's not so hard as annoying because yeah. you need to yeah. readjust your life. Uh, roughly a week and a half ago, I returned from an assignment from Kherson region. So I, I spent some time in the recently liberated Kherson. As you might know, there, there was no electricity, no connection, no water because people get it from the um, Dnipro River. And when you basically come back home, you expect that you can take a shower, uh, warm up a bit, you know, uh, wash your clothes. And uh, what happened to me is so that after a month of an assignment, I returned and there was no electricity and I had to drag my luggage to 15th floor. And it was like 20 kilos back. And with every step, I was actually thinking what I hate the Russians for. So I was thinking, okay, for this electricity power cuts, for ruining my life for the past nine years, etc. one of the floors, uh, so, you know, I was feeling sympathy to myself. And then I suddenly saw an old man uh, slowly, gradually trying to descend. And then I saw a woman who was carrying a wheelchair behind him. At this point, I was like, I, I immediately, uh, you know, stopped uh, feeling sorry for myself. And I, I, I almost had tears in my eyes because I thought, okay, if it's hard for me to leave... Um, to experience this and how hard it is for people who need emergency assistance or medical assistance or, or like to call to the ambulance, for example. And, and like that man who had to basically stop on every staircase, uh, sit down in his wheelchair and rest before going another lap down to another floor. So it was, yeah. it was kind of difficult to see. I'm 
Katerina, I know I know the, the power cuts are an annoyance compared to everything else that's happening in the country, but life has changed so much in such a short period of time. I just wonder, could you take us back to, you know, this time last year? What were you doing? Actually, November 19th marked the year uh, since I started working on the front line. Because if you remember that back in October last year, early November, there were first accounts that Russians started building up troops along the border with Ukraine. And I started visiting the front line. But of course, I didn't anticipate that the war might happen. And um, and I just, I need to tell you that like while other people probably had very nice uh, New Year celebration, I remember that at 11 p.m., so one hour before the new year, um, I, I, we've got news that one soldier died from a sniper bullet, one Ukrainian soldier. And then my parents called me and I started crying. At 23.30, they called me and I was crying for, for 26 minutes. So I missed the new year. Could you imagine that, that now uh, looking back, I think that my whole body kind of knew that something bad would would happen and that probably kind of some some um, guardian or something was like telling me that this year will be hard. And I didn't raise a glass of champagne and I basically missed the new year. That's how it started. And indeed, the year was quite hard for me. Katerina, when we first spoke to you on this podcast, the war was just breaking out. This is back in March. You were making your way across, you know, at the time, cities like Mariupol, because they hadn't been properly invaded yet. Just tell us, what's happened to you personally since? How, how much has your life changed? I keep doing what I like. I keep working on covering the human side of this war. I do a very important job letting people across the globe to know about what's happening in Ukraine. I work 14, 18 hours per day, constantly traveling. Basically, within this past year, since November 2021, I at best stayed in Kyiv months and a half. All other time, I was somewhere close to the front line. It was a life on the road. What about your family, who were in Donetsk, which obviously became an enormous war zone? Well, it became a breaking point, probably, because um, in March... Uh, in March this year, shortly after we recorded our first interview, um, my mom died. Uh, she didn't die from the shelling. But of course, uh, for somebody who lived uh, in the war zone for eight years, the traces, uh, the effect of war hasn't been unnoticeable, Right. Two days before her death, uh, there was a big missile. Uh, it hit an area two blocks away from my parents' house. Uh, 26 people died. There was a huge, uh, uh, loud sound. Uh, my mom died 
I still don't really know what was the cause of her death, but I know what things affected it. Uh, she had diabetes and she didn't have a proper medicine in Donetsk that started experiencing shortages of the medicine. She was not buried properly because um, on a day when her body was uh, brought to the cemetery, they didn't manage to dig a hole because uh, there were not enough men to do that. Because a lot of men were hiding from the forced mobilization started by the pro-Russian authorities in Donetsk and Lugansk. So a lot of young men were hiding at their homes uh, not to be conscripted. There was um, no proper communication with my dad because there was no mobile connection with that area. And uh, it was very hard for me to organize a funeral from um, from away. I couldn't attend the funeral as well because um, it would mean that I have to travel at least five days to get there from Dnipro to Poland, from Poland to Lithuania, and then to Russia, Rostov-on-Don, and then Donetsk. But apart from the long journey, it would be probably very risky for me to be there because of my work in journalism. And I still have my father there, who is 75. My life is split into two right now. So I'm worried about my personal life, not only when I work on the front line, but just when I you know, stay in Kyiv, like yesterday, when there were uh, missiles, Russian missiles across the country. And I also worry about my father, who has been living without water since March. And he hasn't taken showers since March because, you know, there is no water there. And I offered him, I mean, honestly, I offered him to leave. I offered him to do that twice. Two times, 10 minutes before the car arrived, uh, the one that I rented, he refused because he said that for him at 75, it would be very hard to make this journey through Russia, Lithuania, Poland, back uh, to Ukraine. It would be like at least four days. And for for a man in such age, it would be very hard. So it's kind of a limbo situation when you don't know what's the best for him and what's the best for yourself. And uh, this is a dilemma I'm constantly struggling with. Every day I'm thinking about what should I do because um, what would be the best for him? And Katerina, you know, since we last spoke, Donetsk, where your family is, is now... You know, has been declared by Russia to be Russian territory. It's a, a war zone. When you stop, you know, where where does home feel like for you now? I haven't had a feeling of home for nine years, and I can't even convey this feeling. You know, um, prior to the invasion, people from Donbas uh, were in a way, a little bit ostracized in Ukraine because some people blamed people in Donbass for the war because they they were saying that you called the Russian world 
It's because of you the war started. Because you went to referendums and voted for uh, Putin to come, for Russia to come. But it is a truth only to some extent, because um, what can people do against uh, the men with guns? You know what happened in Kherson. You know what happened in Militopol, Berdyansk. When men on the tanks come to your home uh, with guns, you can't really resist. And if, let's say, in Kherson, that was liberated after eight months of the occupation, if uh, occupation for them lasted longer, they would do absolutely the same things that happened in Luhansk and Donetsk. They would take Russian passports, they would work for the occupying forces because you need to survive. So we indeed felt a little bit ostracized, big attention at the checkpoints when the military or police saw our um, uh, registration. And of course, to me as a journalist, it's also quite high, quite suspicious attention as well. So of course, the uh, authorities treat me with suspicion too. That must be incredibly hard. But we got used to this, yeah. It's like, because as I say, I do the most incredible job because I see amazing people. I see enormous spirit of, of these people. And um, I also report about Mm, stories that should be told, how yeah. people's lives were ruined and how they were treated. I mean, the tortures, the rapes, the, the damaged houses. I've seen this before when I covered only the war in Donbass. And I can, I can say that, yeah, I'm more resilient than many people who experienced this war first time that I've seen shelling before, that I was under artillery fire, that somebody put a gun into my face. But you cannot get used to this. You you really cannot get used to this, especially when you see... I just want to say that I thought that I lost the sensitivity. I saw that I've heard so many testimonies of personal Spain, yet there were many cases throughout this war, throughout this year, when I couldn't hold my tears. Uh, one of the most difficult uh, assignments for me was for five weeks of nonstop work uh, from covering the liberated areas. I went to Zaporizhia, where I covered the missile attacks on the city, when basically overnight the complete neighborhood is flattened to earth, one of the entrances of the multi-story building, when basically nine uh, floors are demolished and all people died there. Um, you know, like I remember the man who was standing uh, and waiting for the whole, for, during during the whole day uh, while the bodies of his whole family that died there would be 
unearthed, uh, recovered from the pile of rubble and wreckage. And and, and another man who was uh, running around another building um, and, and, and saying that his uh, partner died there and he was showing pictures uh, on his phone of uh, of the couch, of the table. And I've seen that this whole house was not not higher than like 50 centimeters. So it was impossible for his for his partner with her kids to, to be alive because, you know, the one-story building was co- completely flattened. And, you know, seeing damage is, is hard, but seeing like... These people who are losing instantly their family members, like when yesterday this person was alive and today not anymore, and, he, and the only and the only uh, the only words he said was, "I should have come earlier." Why you you wouldn't be you you wouldn't be able to save them if you knew about it three four hours earlier? You still wouldn't be able to save them because. You can't do anything against the missiles. It's just like imminent death and that's it. So, as I said, I saw that I'm resilient, that as a journalist, I can tell facts and tell quotes, people testimonies, but it still affects me a lot. And um, I still remember these people And uh, I don't know how many more stories like this I will be covering uh, because the war is not finishing anytime soon. Life is difficult for the Ukrainians who stayed, who've watched their homes become a war zone. But it's not easy for the Ukrainians who've left either. Coming up, we hear from the journalist Natalia Grivniak. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm... Roger Boys, I'm the diplomatic editor and foreign policy columnist of The Times. I must say it's a fascinating time, a time of war. I have some experience in Eastern Europe, so my heart is really with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And I'm able to follow in my columns the results, the global famine, the global energy crisis, all these things that are affecting each of our lives, all from this one small bloody field in Eastern Europe. I can only do this. We can only do this. Thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So subscribe today, please, by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Uh, hi, my name is Natalie. I am a Ukrainian journalist that at the moment am a refugee in Poland. I am originally from Kiev, was born in Kiev, and spent almost all my life there. I, so for me, it was difficult to leave Kiev and then to go to Poland because of the war, but, but you know. Natalia is now living in Krakow, close to the Ukrainian border, as a refugee, just waiting to return to her home. Her mother and the family dog eventually left Kyiv too. You actually miss home. When you're being torn away from your own country like this, mm. my family and uh, uh, the rest of the refugees, I've talked to a lot of them here, and uh, most of them are very homesick. Uh, very homesick. Most of them ended up going to Poland because it's the closest country to, to Ukraine. Yeah, you know, in three, four hours, if you're going to be there in your own country. Right now, people don't want to leave. They want to come back home. And, and that's kind of like this sensation that you're a citizen of no country because you understand that as soon as the war ends, you're going to go back immediately. Natalia, I just wanted to take you back a year, to, to this time last year, and I know it feel, must feel like a, a, a different world, but could you just tell us a bit about what life was like for you back then? What was it like last Christmas? What was your life like in Kyiv? Well, uh, you know that Christmas is being celebrated on the 6th of January in my country because of the, it is Orthodox calendar. And, uh, and at Christmas, I remember kids coming and caroling because it's our tradition to go from apartment or from house to house or apartment to apartment and sing different songs or say different carols so that people would give them treats. So I, I remember that very brightly. <laughs> and life has you know, changed a hell of a lot since then. When we last spoke to you, you were you were working from Kiev, but you were also, you know, there was you were aware that you had to get out. Things were changing very quickly. Just tell us what's happened to you since then. Well, I I remember like glimpses of what it was. Me in a shelter, in a bomb shelter, in the metro station, and sleeping in the wagons. Uh, me then trying to. Uh, take a train to Lviv and uh, missing one because there were there there were too full 
Then a second train to leave an explosion right 500 meters, one kilometer away from, from the train. I remember all of these glimpses. And then more or less safe uh, feeling of uh, being in Lviv, which is a Western city in Ukraine. But yet every time you, you have heard sirens, and uh, even at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., so you barely slept. You, it was kind of full of anxiety uh, because you you, never, you you don't know what is going to happen. So it's, you are not controlling anything. So that that gives you anxiety and gives you an instability of mind. And for you, this is your first year, your first few months as effectively an exile, somebody who isn't able to be in your home as you would want to be. How do you cope emotionally with the daily news of the war coming out too? How do you cope with it? You know, I, I was thinking about that question and I think that it feels like you're being frozen inside. You you become numb for everything. Because if you would accepted every single news you, you will feel very you, you will lose it I, 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 I'm losing it sometimes when I hear some news you never knew, you don't know sometimes what is happening with your relatives what is happening with your loved ones The mobile phones even don't work there. So yeah. right now, it's actually they are pushing pushing more anxiety inside of you because you you, you sometimes you cannot get you, you cannot reach some people, and you you don't know what's happening. When you hear the news, oh, there was b- bombs in Kiev in the left bank and the right bank, and you immediately think, okay, where exactly, what street, etc. You 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 dig it, but. Uh, why I said that we are frozen inside? Because whenever you uh, start to be open emotionally to this, you cannot function at all. You cannot even live. And I, I, I don't know. Every time I, I, I speak to my uh, close ones, I, I am emotional every time. But um, like right now, when I live in in the room, I just sit and work. I just sit and work and trying to do some. You know, uh, some support of Ukraine advocacy, uh, some, uh, try to advocate some some uh, messages from Ukraine, support somehow in my own way as a journalist and as a uh, communicator what is happening in the country. Tell us a bit about that, being sort of so split with everything you care about happening over the border, you're somewhere else. How do you support what what's still happening in Ukraine? What have you been doing? Well, I have my own production where we do uh, multimedia stories. So my production did a lot of videos, documentaries from what was happening inside the country because I have a very large network of stringers, videographers, but also I am right now advocating and helping four different communication projects. One is to bring a battery from China, which is like 70 tons, a huge one generator, to one of the hospitals of, I'm trying to do, how to say it, sending from the United States, sending some protective uniforms and some equipment for journalists to work. So that's what I want to do. I'm, I'm involved with this uh, volunteer project trying to bring those equipment to Ukraine. 
And as somebody who, you know, you're, you're in Krakow, you're in Poland now, you're trying to tell the stories of Ukraine and its people and what's happening in the country. Are you noticing any difference in the way that the outside world in its interest in the war? Well, yeah, of course. It's kind of like uh, waves. The interest goes up, the interest goes down. And right now I see that the interest do go down. And um, Is that quite hard when you're living it every day, when you can't really not think about it, seeing people around you and their, their interest wavering? You know, I cannot blame them. When you think about other wars in other countries, you're also uh, not emotional all the time towards that. So I cannot blame anyone. I can only thank everyone for the world support. I mean, I can only be thankful. But uh, my job is to is to explain and to show and to give some stories from Ukraine. I, I did not um, see anywhere in the world how people are uniting in Ukraine. Ukrainians themselves, pretty much 98% of them became volunteers, became uh, ambassadors of Ukraine abroad, became volunteers who would be, you know, sending ammunition, sending, I don't know, some food, sending cars, sending uh, generators or whatever. Every single person does something. So for me, I've never seen it in, a, in any other countries, how U Ukrainians are uniting and how they are being involved in this conflict. I'm not saying that we are something something better or to other countries, no. But I just this this is unique. This is unique to Ukrainian uh, identity. That if you know, if you push, you know, we will push back. So hopefully we will do that. Uh, hopefully the war end, will end soon. I really hope. But you know, I I wanted also to add something. Uh, you never cherish the things you have. Like when you ask me about Christmas, you exactly, you, you are, I'm missing those times because I, even though you also didn't control anything, right? Uh, because there, will, there was war for eight years, there was war uh, 600 kilometers away from Kiev. But in Kiev, you felt safe, in Kiev, everything was like your normal life. That yeah. you actually, you, you, right now, you, you cherish it because back then you were like living your life without even thinking that it could get worse. It could get, uh, severely worse and you would be really afraid for, for uh, your safety and lives of your family, of your friends, of your, uh, I mean, my, 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 my sister, uh, she gave a birth to a son you know, during this time. So Congratulations. Yes, thank you. So uh, she, uh, she stayed all, all, of, all this time in, in Kiev. But her, you know, giving birth to a son, for me, it's kind of like symbolic. I'm, I'm thinking that I hope that everything will end. I, I really hope. Katarina, how do you keep going? Are there moments of hope? Are there moments that that persuade you things things will get better or it's worth it's worth the fight? 
um, liberation of Kharkiv region, Kupinsk and Izium, and then uh, Kherson, gave me, gave me some hope that the good will um, prevail. Of course, I see the enormous resistance of Ukrainian people, uh, inner resistance. You know what? They don't complain, honestly. <laughs> Nobody complains about power cuts. Nobody complains about hey. cold rooms. Nobody is saying, ah, let Zelensky start negotiation with Putin because we want um, our, you know, living conditions to get better. No, people don't say it because they know that the truth is on their side. The truth is that Ukraine will win. <laughs> Earlier or later, but it will happen. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Natalia Grivniak and Katerina Malafeyeva. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.